We are picking back up where we left off um, before our Summer in Psalm series in the Gospel of Luke. We've been going through it for uh, coming up on two years now. Uh, today we'll be in verses 1 through 13. If you are someone who is, uh, hadn't been here when we started the series or when we got our scripture journals and you want one, there are, we ordered some more and they're on the welcome desk there. Uh, help yourself to grab one of those uh, if you believe that would be fruitful for you. Um, right out there um, for you to grab. So Luke 16, and we'll be in verses 1 through 13, which is a parable of Jesus. If you got it, say, I got it. All right. Let's go ahead and read this together. The Holy Spirit says, He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that This man was wasting his possessions, and he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. Said to him, take your bill and write down 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his stewardness. Shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Conan O'Brien wants you to know that nothing matters and you're going to die. So read the headline of a 2019 article on the website Vice. Oddly enough, this article is simply summarizing an interview Conan did with the New York Times, in which he talked about his creative process, he talked about his personal life, and then, says Vice, he took a brief break to offer us readers an important reminder about our own lives, namely, that they are insignificant and mean absolutely nothing to the cold and indifferent universe. The interviewer asked how O'Brien wants to go out in, in, in terms of leaving the entertainment business, and this is how O'Brien answered. He said, At this point in my career, I could go out with a grand 21-gun salute and climb into a rocket, and the entire Supreme Court walks out, and they jointly press a button. I'm shot up into the air, and there's an explosion, and it's orange, and it spells good night and God love. O'Brien said, in this culture, two years later, it's going to be, who's Conan? This is going to sound grim, but eventually all our graves go unattended. The interviewer responded with, you're right, that does sound grim. 
to which O'Brien launched into this. He said, sorry, Calvin Coolidge was a pretty popular president. I've been to his grave in Vermont. It has his presidential seal on it. Nobody was there. I had a great conversation, he says, with Albert Books once. When I met him for the first time, I was kind of stammering. I said, you make movies, they live on forever. I just do these late night shows, they get lost. They're never seen again, and who cares? And he looked at me and he said, what are you talking about? It None of it matters. Conan asked, none of it matters? No, said Brooks. That's the secret. In 1940, people said Clark Gable is the face of the 20th century. Who thinks about Clark Gable? It doesn't matter. You'll be forgotten. I'll be forgotten. We'll all be forgotten. Does that sound grim to you? It does sound grim, right? But we all know that what he said was true, don't we? You know, I read a separate article this week that I saved from a few years ago, and the title of it was, I became a self-made millionaire, and it was incredibly underwhelming. After telling his rags-to-riches story, the author talked about how underwhelming it was to cross the millionaire threshold and that there was no pomp and circumstance when it happened. He asked, what's the goal here? Two million? What's the end goal? Then he said that when he dies, he'll just be lowered into the ground like everyone else, and what's the point of being the rich, richest dead guy in the graveyard? So he concluded essentially that he needed to use his riches to leave a legacy. That's a better goal, he said. But, but then in light of what Conan said, how long do legacies last? Is that a good thing to live for? To, to leave a mark where people remember you, but for how long will they remember you? What is the goal? Is life a grim affair where nothing we do matters, or should we live for a future in which the people that we leave behind at death remember us fondly? Well, either of those options do. We all know that we're going to die someday, yes? We know that, as an old preacher told a group of young preachers, they're going to put you in a box, and the box they're going to put in the ground, and they're going to throw dirt on your face, and then they're going to go back to the church and eat potato salad. And so, in light of that fact, what are we doing to prepare? Are we living in light of that knowledge? Jesus says, we must. And Jesus says that our legacies aren't what we should be living for. And Jesus says that what we do in this vapor's worth of life on earth actually matters. And Jesus says that we must live for the future, but not in the way that most people do. And he says all that in these 13 short verses that we have before us today. Well, as we turn our attention back to Luke, we must remember what, that we are in a section of the book in which Jesus has set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. This means that this is the central section of the book, and that everything from the end of chapter 9 forward must be seen in light of the looming cross. In chapter 16, Jesus, Jesus turns his attention away from directly addressing the Pharisees, and he addresses his disciples while still using the Pharisees as a foil for his teaching. You can see from verse 1 that his disciples are his audience for what has been deemed Jesus' most difficult parable to understand. So let's do this, okay? Here's our plan. We will briefly explain what is going on in the parable, okay? And then we'll consider three questions with the remainder of our time, okay? So first thing we want to talk about is what's going on in this parable? What's happening in this story? See, even though it's a difficult one to understand, the story's pretty straightforward, isn't it? 
a wealthy man had a steward, okay, who was in charge of his property, which was a very common thing in the ancient world, okay? He wasn't a slave, as some suggest. He was a household manager. He was hired to oversee an absentee landlord's property and goods, okay? That's what this man is. If he was a slave, he wouldn't be fired. He'd be beaten or punished in some other way. But it turned out that the man was bad at his job, and the owner found out about it. So it turns out that the man was wasting his master's possessions, and he was incompetent. It was therefore in the owner's best interest to what we call can this fella. So he calls him up. He says, I need you to come to my office. Have you ever gotten that call in your job before? It's a bummer. The steward shows up, is called to account for his incompetence, and he's fired. Okay? But, said the owner, you can settle up your accounts before you hit the bricks. So the steward starts to panic. What will I do now, he says. He, he doesn't want to beg. That's too embarrassing and shameful. He doesn't want to dig, which was the toughest form of manual labor. And he was white collar for so long, he doesn't want to go back to all that. So what will he do? He devises a plan. Okay? He knows in the nearest of futures, he will be jobless. So in light of that looming crisis, he makes a shrewd plan for his future. And that's the key to the parable. In light of the looming crisis, he makes a plan for his future. His plan is to use the remaining time he has as a manager to make deals that will create favorable response from those who owe money, you see? So that when he's let go, they will take him in. Okay? They will hire him or otherwise help him out. So the steward systematically goes through the inventory one debtor at a time, and he asks each one to declare what they owe, perhaps in order that they will better appreciate the reduction that they're about to receive. And this lessening of the debt will therefore create goodwill toward him when he's released into the labor market. You guys with me so far? So without going into specifics of first century Palestine oil and wheat measurements, the steward reduces both of, both of these bills mentioned by 500 denarii, which is about two years wages, okay? Two years' wages for a day laborer, that's a considerable sum. The hope, of course, is that this generosity will create a relationship of reciprocity for those debtors who will now believe themselves in this man's debt. Well, the owner finds out what he did, and he commends the steward for his shrewdness. He doesn't commend him for what he did per se. Okay? He commended his wisdom to ensure his own future in light of impending crisis of his joblessness, okay? And then that's it. That's, the story just ends, all right? We're, we're left wondering what happened next, but that's not the point, is it? The parable ends, if you look at your text, in verse 8a, okay? So the very first part of verse 8 is where it ends. Jesus' remarks about the parable begin in 8b, okay? When he says... For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And this is why many people get confused about this parable. Is Jesus commending the unjust steward for doing things that were clearly unrighteous? No. He's making a point of comparison. And this is how we'll be able to understand this parable. He is not saying that his disciples should be like the unjust steward in his unrighteousness. He is asking why unbelievers are more shrewd with planning for their futures that only last in this world 
than believers are in planning for a future that lasts into eternity. Do you see? It's a point of comparison. James Edward, he healthfully notes, the unjust steward is indeed a son of this world, but he is more prudent in planning for the only future he is concerned about than the typical religious person is in planning for his eternal future with God. A key to what Jesus is saying is to remember that there is a looming crisis, namely the cross and the end of the age. Jesus has shown up as the kingdom of God in a person. The kingdom of God has broken into this age and he has been inviting people we've seen from Luke's gospel to be part of his kingdom. Those who give their allegiance to him are therefore children of light and thus children of the age to come rather than children of this age only. The sons of this world only live for this world. Children of the light are to live for the next. You guys still with me? The steward, would you tell me if you weren't? The steward had an impending crisis of unemployment, okay? And he used his time and his master's possessions in order to secure a future for himself. The disciple of Jesus knows of the impending crisis of the end of time and the eternal looming dwelling. But they tend, this is what Jesus is saying, to not live and plan in light of that. In the same way that the unjust steward lives and plans for his impending crisis of mere unemployment. Do you see? So, three questions based on all this, okay, that will serve us. These will be our three points, three questions. Number one, question one, what is truly yours? Number one, what is truly yours? The steward truly was shrewd because he was able to secure his temporal future for himself by means of his master's property, right? The fact remains, the reduction of debt that the steward pursued with the owner's debtor was debt that they owed, not him, but his master. It wasn't his property nor his money, but he used it in order to make favorable relationships with people for his own benefit. Jesus' lesson from the parable runs from 8b through verse 13. And in verse 12, he asks, If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So what is he saying? He's saying that nothing we have is truly ours. Nothing we have is truly ours. We own nothing. Not, not truly. But we have been entrusted, you see, with what God has given us to steward. So what will we do with what he, he has entrusted us with? Daryl Bach says the earthly life is a God-given stewardship for which one is responsible. It is preparedness for the life to come and, in fact, helps determine how much the person will possess in the age to come. So how we use what has been entrusted to us in terms of our lives, our time, our energy, our money, our possessions says something about what we think about what is actually ours. And what do I mean by that? If we do not live in light of the impending crisis, which is far more important than impending unemployment of the steward, then we're saying that we believe what we have is ours to do with as we please. 
See, and here's the premise we must begin with if we're to live the way that Jesus is saying here. What's that premise? That nothing we have is truly ours. Not our time, not our bodies, not our energy, not our zeal, not our job, not our money, not our possessions, not our families, not our kids, not even the air that comes in and out of our lungs. You guys remember the story of John Wesley when he was traveling away from his house. A man came riding up to him on a horse very quickly, and the man was very distraught. He was shouting as he approached, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house is burned to the ground. You know what Wesley said? He said, no, the Lord's house burned to the ground. That means one less responsibility for me. As we said, is that how you would react? Wesley knew from whence his house came. And he truly believed it wasn't his anyway. <laughs> Wesley knew what we're saying now, that we are, as it were, mere stewards of our master's property. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And then a mere two chapters later, he says, you were bought with a price. I.e., God is your owner and your master. Do you believe that? Not a, not a nary a person said anything. Do you believe that God is your owner and your master? Get a little Pentecostal up here, all right? Relax. But now, I think we all know this intellectually. Maybe that's why, besides being very Baptist, you didn't answer, because you're like, yeah, I know. God owns everything, right? But do we live as if that's true? David Behrens says that this way. He says, although it manifests itself different today... Boasting still runs rampant in the church and discloses a major inconsistency in the lives of believers. To put it bluntly, we often think and act like the world. We think that our house is the result of our hard labor at work, that our job is a direct corollary of our educational achievements and intellectual aptitude, or that favor from the world is a natural consequence of our unique personalities. We then begin acting in a way that confirms this belief. Our speech reveals the fact that we neither believe the Lord gives nor that he takes away. Our actions demonstrate that we believe we can determine our own destinies and our lives are characterized more by self-sufficiency than on dependence on God. You know, built into our minds in a culture like ours of self-made people pulling ourselves by our own bootstraps, we recoil at the thought that what we have could possibly come from any source that's not us. Right? It is offensive to the modern mind. To be told that what you ha they have is not only not theirs, but the result of a gracious God and not primarily because they're hardworking and creative. It's offensive. We want to say, how dare you? I worked very, very hard for everything that I have, and it is therefore mine to do with as I please. And look, I personally have no doubt that you all worked very hard for what you have, but think about it at the most basic level. Who ensured you woke up every day so that you go to work? You know, we take that for granted. There's some people today did not wake up. But you woke up every day to go to work. Who allowed the blood to continue to course through your veins? Who allowed air to be drawn in your lungs and exhaled again? Who gave strength to your muscles to even merely walk, let alone do physical labor? Who gave you a brain that could process information and learn skills? 
all of it is from the hand of a gracious God. Without him, we would process nothing. He allowed us to wake up, to live, to breathe, to see, to hear, to learn, to have physical strength, to even get out of bed. At the most basic level, God allowed us to live, learn, and earn. C.S. Lewis said it like this, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. Like Stuart in the parable then, we have been given little in the scope of eternal, right? Our lives, our time, our children, our work, our possessions, they aren't ours, they are our masters, but how will we spend all that? That's the question. Jesus is wondering why the unjust steward was unrighteous but shrewd. But believers can both misspend what they've been given and not be shrewd or wise. God has, in a sense, handed us what only belongs to him to steward, and he's watching how we steward it. If we presume ownership, then we'll live like it. Even if we intellectually say, yes, I know everything's God's, unless we realize this basic truth, we'll both be unjust and unwise. This will change everything about how we use our time, possessions, and life itself. If we believe ourselves to be strong and autonomous to the point that everything we have, we earned independent of even our creator, we'll live as if everything can be used as we see fit. But if we realize, truly, truly realize, this basic truth that everything is God's for use to, for us to use for his glory, then how we use our time, energy, possession, job, extracurriculars, everything about how we live will change. Why? Because we'll be living for a different future. And this leads us to our second question. Question number two. What future are you investing in? What future are you investing in? Again, he's not commending the steward for his unrighteous actions, nor even that he was shrewd towards his immediate future. He is still shrewd in the wrong direction, the steward is. His shrewdness is to be, com- is, is to be commended. What, what he has been shrewd in is not, right? Verse 8, he is a child of this age, meaning he is investing only in his short-term future. He, he's like all children of this age, i.e. unbelievers, and thinking only of the temporal, only of this world. He's not living for the age to come because he isn't a disciple of Jesus. Right? But, but we see the problem that Jesus has, don't we? The problem comes when disciples, who are people of two ages, live like unbelievers in that they're only living for the temporal or this life alone. That, that's Jesus' problem. Many of you may be good at investing in the future. You may have a good retirement plan that makes you feel very secure. You may be very good and true with your money to where you don't have to worry about anything. You may be very good with what you have now to where you are shrewdly moving money around, spending wisely to where you can enjoy many good things. But Jesus asks, what will that get you in eternity? These things are temporal. This life's a vapor. The things you own and you invest in this side of heaven will eventually 
be gone, won't they? Indeed, you will be gone. And what will become of all that stuff you accumulate and all that money you built up? What about your time? How did you invest your time that will speak to a life beyond this world? So we indeed know a lot and invest a lot in this age, but what about the age to come? How much are we investing in that? Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Bach put it succinctly when he said, Jesus is saying that God's children who have a heavenly future should be as diligent in assessing the long-term effect of their actions as those who don't know God are in protecting their earthly well-being. Christians should apply themselves to honor and serve God in their actions as much as secular people apply themselves to obtain protection and prosperity from money in the world. Think about the foolishness of investing in this life only when eternity is on the horizon. Think about knowing that there is a looming crisis and doing nothing with that knowledge. In this life alone, which is but a vapor that is here for one moment and gone the next, is it really worth investing in? You're going to accumulate a nice house, nice cars, nice size bank account, and then what? And then what? What will become of all that? What will become of you? You know, I remember several years ago watching Jerry Seinfeld do a stand-up routine on The Tonight Show. And he said that all of our houses are basically garbage processing centers. He said that everything you own is simply on a different level of becoming garbage. You buy new things, you bring them in the house, you've done this right, you're all excited. When you get something new, you bring it in, you open it on the kitchen table, which is the place of new, new honor, place of honor for the new arrivals. But over time, something that was nice and new and exciting will end up in the dump. Am I wrong? It's inevitable. I mean, even something as big as a new car will eventually be turned into scrap or be crushed and become a little cube. Even your house will eventually be gone. Like I drive around as you do around the countryside and I see all these abandoned houses. But they were all once new and nice. Now they're collected critters. And the roof's falling in. And it's only fit to be torn down. But at some point, these were people's prizes. Now what? We spend the bulk of our time and energy and zeal and money to collect these things that will eventually be worthless. Is that good investing? The unjust steward was faced with a crisis, and he asked himself, what should I do in light of this crisis? And Jesus is telling his hearers and his readers to ask the same question in light of the crisis of eternity. We're to ask, what shall I do what shall I do with my time and energy and zeal and money and possessions? Where should I invest it? And the answer invariably is not in the temporal, not on things that don't truly last. The steward made friends, did you notice that? In order to secure his immediate future. And Jesus says in verse 9 to do the same thing, doesn't he? Verse 9, he says, make friends for yourselves by means of money which so easily leads you astray so that you will be received in earthly dwellings. What does that mean? What friends? It means 
You should invest and you should make friends by way of your time, money, and possessions so that you may be welcomed in God's eternal dwelling. Who are these friends that we can make that will be an investment in eternity? He told us earlier in the book. Do you remember? In 1233, Jesus said this, sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. What about 1412? That's more recent, right? When you give a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The principle Jesus is giving us in Luke 16, 9 is the same as what he gives in Matthew 25. You remember that? Which is that what you do for the least of all people, it will be as if you did it for God. God counts works of mercy done to the least of his creatures as works done for himself. Jesus is saying that when you use your money and possessions of time for comfort for yourself in this transient world, you are investing in a future that does not last. But if you use your money, time, and possessions to help the poor, you're investing in eternity. It is as Augustine said in reference to the parable of the rich fool. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. Don't we do cost-benefit analysis in our lives all the time? Don't we do that? Whether with our personal budget or in our business, we want to know if we will get a return, Right? on our investment, whether it be something small or large. Yes? What Jesus is telling us to do is simply do a cost-benefit analysis. That's all he's saying. He says, you've been given these things to steward. Time, money, property, etc. Everything you have is on loan from God. Now you must invest these things properly. If you use time, money, property for your benefit only, for your comfort only, for your ease only, for your future on earth only, you'll get no eternal return on those investments. That's what he's saying. When those things are gone, they're just gone. And that's it. However, if you use your time, money, and property for the benefit of others, for growing in Christ, for getting the gospel to the children of this age so that they'll become children of light to relieve the poor, well, your investment will yield eternal rewards. Which is the better investment? You tell me. What's better? This one. Yes? Eternity? I will start over. If you guys are not getting this. What is the cost-benefit analysis we do? Just ask, okay? When we see someone in need, like a poor person or a beggar. I'll tell you what we do. This is what I do. We assume they did something to deserve their plight. We remind ourselves that we chagrin people who want something for nothing because they should earn it like we did. Yes? And then we assume they will misuse what we give them. So what do we do? Nothing. We ran the numbers, and it would be better if I spend $10 on Starbucks than help this person. Now, I'm not saying never go to Starbucks right? and give money to every beggar you see. But we'd be lying if we didn't weigh our excess against how we treat and view the poor and admit that the scales are tipped in the wrong way. But see, 
why do we assume the worst about the poor? Have you ever thought about this? Do we not stereotype the poor all the time? There's only two options, all right, for how to stereotype the poor. Either we assume they're up to no good, or we can assume that they are in real need, right? Either they got themselves to this point, or they've had bad breaks in life. In the former, we get to keep our money, (laughs) but in the latter, we don't. So what do we choose? The one where we get to keep our stuff, right? Why not choose to assume the best? If we're assuming things, since we can't possibly know, since we aren't God, why not assume in the other direction? Let me tell you about my oldest. She didn't know I was going to do this. Don't look at her or she'll be embarrassed. She gets a little money, not from me, okay, but for birthdays, <laughs> for chores or whatever. And she has her wallet. She's driving around with her mom. She's a homeless person, and she takes that money, and then she gives it to them. Is that bad investment? Should she have bought something for herself instead? You know why she does it? She's she's not jaded and cynical like all of us adults are. She sees a mere human in need. So she helps. You think that's a foolish investment? Well, what does God see? He sees an investment into eternity. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't see us in our helpless estate that we brought on ourselves by our own sin and rebellion and ignored us. That's what Jonathan Edwards said. You know, all the goofy excuses that we give today are the same goofy excuses they gave during the Puritan era. Jonathan Edwards said to, to answer his people's excuses about why not help the poor, he said, for Christ hath loved us, pitied us, greatly laid out himself to relieve us from that want and misery which we brought on ourselves by our own folly and wickedness, we foolishly and perversely threw away those riches with which he provided, upon which we might have lived and been happy to all eternity. (laughs) Isn't it good news that Jesus didn't see us spiritually poor beggars and tell us to pull ourselves up by our proverbial bootstraps? Aren't you glad he didn't regard our helpless estate with callousness and ignore us? And see, he actually knows our hearts, right? He knows our hearts, and he knows we really did get ourselves into this spiritual bankrupt situation that we are in. Yet he looked upon us with pity, and he moved heaven and earth to get to us. Do we forget that when we see other people? What's an eternal, eternal investment? God has blessed us with time and money and house and cars and more, so we are, where are we putting them to eternal use? We are shrewd in business. We know our jobs. We are experts at our hobbies. We're initiative takers at work. We're bold and ruthless. We're outgoing and good time managers. And for what? For temporal rewards. For things that do not last. So Jesus wants to know, why aren't you shrewd with your time for the kingdom? Why not be experts in the gospel and the word of God? Why not disciple someone for an hour a week? Why not be an initiative taker to talk to your neighbors so that they know that Jesus loves them and that their destiny is eternal separation from him if they don't bend their knee to him? Why not be outgoing to people in darkness? Won't those yield eternal rewards? See, it's good that you have a nice house. There's nothing wrong with that. 
Do you use it for the kingdom? Do you use it to host a life group with people unlike you who only have Jesus in common with you? Do you use it to relieve those in need? Do you use it to have the poor at the table who can't pay you back or just your friends so that when they're leaving, they can say, you know, we're going to have to have you over next time. Do you use your car to get you to and from your job and your extracurriculars and your vacations or give an elderly person a ride to church or to doctor's appointments? You like to travel? That's great. Why not travel to the nations to reach those who have never heard the name of Jesus? Who else is going to do all of that? If not us, then who? Who will reach the community and the poor and the nations if not we who have been blessed with far more than we need? Will we really look back on our lives and wish we would have lived more for ourselves? Do you think? Or was Jim Elliott right when he said in his journal at age 22, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose? Only someone with an eternal mindset living for the future could say something like that. You guys remember the movie Schindler's List, yes? Tells the story, of course, of how Oscar Schindler saved about 1,000 Jews from the Holocaust during World War II. But in the movie, there's a scene towards the end when, when Schindler looks at his car and his gold pin and he regrets that he didn't give more of his money and possessions to save more lives. I think it's fair, yes, to say that Schindler had used his opportunity far better than most. That's fair to say, right? But in the end, he longed for a chance to go back and make better choices to rescue even more people. What's more likely? that we look back at our lives and wish we would have spent more on ourselves or that we would have invested more in the kingdom and eternity. Randy Alcorn says, this life is our opportunity. Scripture does not teach what most of us seem to assume, that heaven will transform each of us into equal beings with equal possessions and equal responsibilities and equal capacities. It does not say our previous lives will be of no eternal significance. It says exactly the opposite. It's true, of course, that Christians are dominated by the same concerns as the rest of society, but Jesus' teaching intends to give us a different set of concerns than the unbelieving world does. He means to come and wreck our categories, don't you see? And our priorities and cause to change how we see literally everything from the smallest to the largest part of our lives, and he means to influence all of it because you have to to serve someone, don't you? And that brings us to our final question. Point three, question three. Who do you serve? Jesus does hear what he's done often in the Gospel of Luke, which is offer us a choice. Verse 13. No servant can turn, serve two masters, for he will, the, he will love the one, hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this word money is the word mammon, which is used uh, for wealth in verse 11. Jesus calls mammon unrighteous in verse 11, not because money itself is bad, right? Money is indifferent. It, it's an inanimate object. It cannot by itself be evil or unrighteous. Uh, Jesus calls it unrighteous because if wealth is the object of one's affections, 
it becomes unrighteous because it displaces God's rule in your life. You see, so those who imagine they can serve both God and money are under a delusion. That's what Jesus says. It's not possible to serve both. It's just not. And he, he puts it in the starkest way possible. You will love the one and hate the other. Money will either be used in a way that Jesus calls for it to be used as a means to live and invest in eternity, or it will be used for self and be served as the ultimate master of your life. And thus, you will serve money and use God. Notice, do you notice how Jesus phrases this? He doesn't say, you shouldn't serve two masters. Is that what he says? He says it's impossible. You just can't. You will hate the one, he says, and love the other. You'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You can't serve both God and possessions. What Jesus is saying is that we will always prefer one master over the other. Both these masters, Christ and eternal rewards, demand total devotion from us. Jesus personifies possessions as if it were a slave master who makes demand on our lives, calling for undivided allegiance and loyalty. See, Jesus knows how quickly and easily our possessions can possess us. James Edwards says, The only way mammon of righteousness can be put in its proper place is to make sure that God alone is Lord and Master and to signify that lordship by using money and wealth in God's service. Now, here's a good test. You guys like tests, right? A good test for this is just take, take today, okay? meditate on what we said this morning. You, you may have rejected, you may be rejecting everything I said. And if you did, why is that? Is it because you don't like it? <laughs> or because it isn't what Jesus said? See, that, that's a big difference, isn't it? We have to stop softening Christ's demands. The safe, undemanding, unassuming, middle-class Jesus we in the West have concocted in order to live selfish, self-propelled lives is not the real Jesus. The real Jesus makes radical claims. And he's either our Lord and Master or something else is. But in him and in him alone is where life is found. In him and in him alone is it possible to invest now for a future that never ends. Listen, you guys get to deal with this thing for an hour, okay? I had to deal with this all week. <laughs> and when I was studying it, you guess what? I didn't like what it said either. And I still don't. But it is what Jesus said. So either we don't like it, and we bring ourselves under what Jesus said anyway, or we convince ourselves that this isn't what Jesus meant, in which case we could change nothing about our lives and bow down to our God, Mammon. Now, we, we don't want to be so blunt, right? But Jesus is. He's asking not to be hard, but because he wants what's best for our souls and eternity. He wants us to serve the one true God and invest now into forever. He is confronting us with a choice because he wants us to make the right one. Do you see? Do you guys know you guys know the name Frederick Nietzsche? Yes? He was a 19th century German philosopher and atheist. He's the guy who proclaimed God is dead. But he didn't just say God was dead and move on, okay? He said God would inevitably be replaced in society. For men will not go from worshiping something to worshiping nothing. This is what Nietzsche said. He said, what induces one man to use false weights 
another to set his house on fire after having insured it for more than its value. While three-fourths of our upper classes indulge in legalized fraud. What gives rise to all this? It is not real want for their existence is by means of precarious, but they are urged on day and night by terrible impatience at their wealth pile up so slowly and by an equally terrible longing and love for these heaps of gold. What once was done for the love of God is now done for the love of money, i.e. for the love of that which at present affords us the highest feeling of power and a good conscience. See, Nietzsche foretold that money would be the primary counterfeit God in Western culture. But before he said it, Jesus said that even for people who aren't rich by contemporary standards, that we will be tempted to worship and serve money and possessions and careers and success and acclaim, that we will try to find meaning and purpose and value in what we could do, what we could own, or how many vacations we could take, or how comfortable our retirement could be, or if we could have a better house and car than our neighbors and coworkers. And all that centers on a temporal vision of fleeting happiness. All of it is throwing sacrifices at the feet of God of money. Jesus says, if, if money is your God, I cannot be. It's one or the other. The Western church it, it thinks it can somehow hold this intention. Jesus says, impossible. So friend, who do you serve? Who is your true master? You know what's funny about this? No one thinks they're guilty of serving mammon. No one. But who is your devotion more? Who do you think about more? Who are you trying to please more? Who takes second place? Who gets your more of your time, energy, and love? You guys remember when Tim Keller was doing, he was doing a seven-week study on the seven deadly sins at a men's breakfast. And his wife told him before the series started, you know, the lesson on greed is going to be your lowest attended one. And she was right. People went, they went in droves for lust and wrath and even pride, but nobody thinks they're greedy. He said, he said this next, as a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin, almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. He says, greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. You've got to serve somebody. Isn't that what Bob Dylan said? So who are you serving? God or things? Where are you investing this world and life alone or eternity? If God has trusted you with such little things, vapor's worth of life, small amount of money in the grand scheme of things, days full of time, possessions. Can he see how you use those things and entrust you with greater things in eternity? That's what Jesus is asking. Who is your true God, your true Lord, your true master to whom you bend knee and say, command me? Jesus, who was rich beyond all measure, emptied himself and became poor living the life of a homeless rabbi who had no place to lay his head. And he did that on purpose, and he did that for you. He didn't choose the lavish, the comfortable, the easy, though he could have, since he possesses all things. 
He chose to be poor, despised, suffering, so that you could become rich. Not in this prosperity kind, gospel kind of way, but in a way that should cause us to live now in light of the future in which you will inherit all things that are his. How could you serve him while at the same time be serving anything else? In all things, Jesus must have preeminence. Jeff Thomas said, there's no middle ground here. You might like to serve them both, money and God, but that's impossible. You have to choose. There could be only one dominating love in your life, this affection, and this affection alone you will serve. Bring yourself under the mastery of Jesus Christ. Bring your possessions under the mastery of Christ. Remember how much wealth he laid aside when he came into the world for you. Love amazing, love so divine, commands your life, your soul, your all. And shouldn't the earth-shattering truth of what Jesus has done for us, prodigals, alter how we live in the here and now? Because of what Jesus did, there will be a day when this age is closed. And the kingdom comes in its fullness. Are you living in light of that? Everything that we see and everything that we have will be gone. What will remain? Only the reward for what we did for the kingdom. That's it. Is that what you're living for? Let me close with this, and then I'll pray, and then we'll come to the Lord's table, okay? The name Alfred Nobel may be familiar to you. He's the man who the Nobel Peace Prize is named after. Nobel became rich by inventing dynamite and other explosive things that the governments bought to produce weapons, okay? Nobel's brother Ludwig died, and a French newspaper accidentally printed Alfred's obituary instead of Ludwig's, okay? He got to read his own obituary. So in it, Alfred was described as a man who made a fortune for enabling people to kill each other in unparalleled quantities. And he was shaken by this assessment. Nobel decided that he would use the fortune he had accumulated to reward accomplishments that benefited humanity. And $9 million was used in his life to try to edit how he would be remembered in history. Now, can you put yourself in Nobel's place? What would your obituary say? When you leave this world, will you be known as one who accumulated treasures on earth that you couldn't keep, or you will be recognized as someone who invested in treasure in heaven that you cannot lose? God in his graciousness has provided this moment to us all to determine will we live henceforth for eternity's sake? What will you choose? Or better still, who will you choose?